0: Online, on
1: smart speakers, and on listen again. This is Food FN. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and
0: spirits. This week, democratising wine, giving the consumer a say in how it's made. Alex Brogan was recently named winner of the IWSC's Emerging Talent in Wine Award. He joins me to talk about his not-yet-named wine Co. The wine world can sometimes seem a bit baffling, even intimidating to those on the outside. But if Alex Brogan has his way, that is going to change. Named as winner of the IWSC's hotly contested Emerging Talent in Wine trophy, sponsored by London Wine Fair, for his not yet named Wine Co., he was lauded for his effort to democratise the way uh, the wine is made. It's a process of which consumers are in control, they are his members effectively, in return for investing in the wine. The project has already resulted in two wines yet to be released and a third could be on the way. Uh, to find out more uh, let's chat to Alex. Uh, welcome to The Drinking Hour, Alex. Thank you, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: I've listened to a few podcasts and well, enjoyed quite a lot.
0: Oh, God. Well, you, you're saying all the right things. So, um, listen, I, I, what you've done is, um, really, uh, very, uh, interesting and exciting. And before we come to it and sort of you, your best to explain it, just tell us a little bit about your own wine journey so far.
1: Yeah. So actually, my wine journey started quite a long time ago, maybe sort of 10, 12 years ago. I worked at Majestic. It was first job out of university, didn't know what I wanted to do exactly, and it seemed like a, a fun job to do. So, I spent a couple of years there, absolutely loved it, really fell in love with wine, especially. Um, but then, unfortunately, they, they give you a taste for stuff that you then can no longer afford. So, I decided to have a little career change, uh, moving to something a little less interesting for the last eight or nine years. But then, I always had it somewhere in the back of my mind that I wanted to return to wine that was always my dream and I I spent a bit of time just saving up some money thinking about how to get back into it Uh, it was actually in 2018 when I I took a year out from my job to travel around I did a couple of harvests one in Bordeaux and one in Chile and at that point I like I realized I actually just want to make wine that's that's what I want to do so yeah I saved a bit of money and then joined Plumpton College do a degree in viticulture and
0: oenology and that is now complete, I believe, isn't it? No, no, not at all actually oh. um, so i've I'm actually one one and a
1: half years through it, so yeah, so in the in the summer at the end of my first year, I yeah, we set up not yet named Wineco. Uh, but actually because of the I guess it's gone better than we expected. I've actually gone down to part time because you know I want to focus a bit more on the business, so I've still got another three half years to go before i'm I'm finished at Pumpton.
0: Good God. Well you uh, are already seriously accomplished for someone who's still doing their uh enology studies it has to be said so tell me how the idea for not yet named wine co which is a bit of a mouthful uh tell me um how it came about
1: uh, yeah so as you said like I was, I was a first year student and it was myself and Manuel another another student at the college we um we sat sat down one day in the canteen, and we, would, like all winemakers at Plumpton, or all, all winemakers anywhere who are just starting out, you want to make your own wine. That, that's what you want to do. That's the dream. And the normal, the normal path into getting into winemaking is you, you'd be an intern for a few years, you know, do a few harvests, get under your belt, then become an assistant, and then hopefully, if that goes well, a few years later, you might be a winemaker with an analogist telling you what to do. And it's it's a bit of a a bit of a, a ladder to get to the top. Um, so we just had this idea of well well, how can we just do our own thing? Really, what we thought we needed was a bit of money to be able to buy grapes and rent equipment, which we didn't have. So we needed a bit of an innovative way to get that money in effectively.
0: It's a kind of form of crowdfunding, but unlike a lot of crowdfunding, which is just, um, please give me some money. This is uh, you know, comes with um, a, a sense of participation and of course, uh, a reward at the end of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. I've, 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 I've thought about whether this is a crowdfunding model or not for a lot and I've never got to a definitive answer because it is a little bit you are investing in a couple of young winemakers trying to make their way but also you are just buying wine right you'll, you'll get six bottles at the end of it it's yeah and an experience and a journey along the way so I think I'm leaning towards calling it just a, just a normal product that you buy it's just you don't get the finished product straight away but you go straight into the experience.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair enough, because, as I say, uh, crowdfunding comes in all sort of uh, shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's, you know, please help me with my Master of Wine studies. Uh, Sometimes it's please invest in this innovative business. Uh, Sometimes you don't know a great deal about that business. Um, But yours is pretty straightforward. You're uh, taking part in a process, having a say in that process and then getting your reward at the end of it. Uh, the wine. Um, that's the kind of nutshell version. Um, just give us a bit more detail uh, for those listening who might want to take part themselves on how it works, uh, what you're expected to do, and what you get.
1: Yeah, so the, the overall concept is that yeah, we we sell the wine before it's made. It's it's almost like on premier, but it's it's before on premier. So we, we we tend to joke that it's a pre on premier offering. Um, and you buy six bottles, you buy you buy half a case, um, and then in exchange you get a vote. In how we make the wine. So every time us as winemakers come across a, a decision that we would make ordinarily, uh, we send an email to our members that explains all the pros and cons of a decision, the sort of the risks, crucially, I guess, the impact on taste, uh, and then we let people decide on how we make the wine. Um, we only provide good options and we sort of decide those options, uh, but then people can choose pretty much exactly how we make the wine from. Starting out, you know, grape variety through to picking date, whether we do it earlier or later, uh, whether we add yeast or what specific yeast we add to the ferment, all the decisions through the winemaking until it's you know until it's until it's ready, and then alongside that we also do a bit more of the less serious stuff. or say less serious, the, the non winemaking stuff. People also get to uh, name the wine, hence why we're called Not Yet Named wine Co., Um, They get to design the label. They decide whether it's a screw cap or a cork or whether we wax the top. Um, Even some really daft stuff like the music that we play to the barrels just just to keep it interesting as well. It's it's not all technical winemaking. It's also a bit of fun.
0: This idea of having the winemaking process uh, kind of democratised in this way initially uh, struck me as, completely bonkers. Uh, I've told you that before. In fact, I said it in front of an audience at the London Wine Fair. I think I'm wrong. Uh, I think I was just being Um, overcautious. What sort of reaction have you had? Have you had many people who've kind of questioned the sanity of this process? Um, A few people,
1: but I'm also quite a cautious person myself. And this idea was in my head for a long time. And I think I went through every permutation of what could happen and what would go wrong so when I started to explain it to people I think I pretty much had an answer to other people's concerns because I had those same concerns myself and, uh, and actually some of those concerns are sort of real and still exist um, in terms of it's not necessarily the way a winemaker would go about making the best possible wine like ideally and it's true of anything right you want to start with a plan and go through that step by step and adjust if necessary but this doesn't allow us to plan in the same way i think we originally did try to do a little tree diagram of all the permutations and how it could end up but it got very complicated very quickly so we just mm. decided to wing it <laughs> and wow. it, it sort of it has worked and i guess our focus is on the experience and learning the winemaking process as much so if the wine isn't top-notch then it is is less important however you know, I think we've been lucky. Certainly, with the the first vintage, that it, it has turned out to be pretty
0: good. This is uh, the key, I think. You know, looking at the emails you send out, and we'll come to the way you explain things uh, in a minute because it's it's really good. But you are basically being invited to kind of go on a winemaking journey uh, with people who are still learning themselves. I mean, that that's fair, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right, and it's it's how we write the emails. So. As somebody who's relatively inexperienced with making their own wine, when it comes to decision, if I know something's coming, I'll I'll really study it. Like I'll get the um, the scientific journals. I'll, I'll be reading the, the trusted textbooks that Plumpton provided with us. And I, I make notes on what I would do and the various options and what might happen if we adopt different techniques or not. And then from these notes, I pretty much just drop them into the email. So it is exactly what I'm learning and what I'm thinking. It's very much my, you know, like a, a brain dump of what's going through my head when I'm thinking of the options for a decision, um, just without all of the responsibility of having to make that decision at the end. Uh, You
0: mentioned that obviously you don't want to screw up the wine. So therefore you're not giving completely batshit crazy options to your followers, members, uh, whatever you call them, fellow kind of uh, journey goers. Uh, but I mean, when you're giving those options, um, you are they are genuine options. So you could, as um, a follower, member, whatever you call them, you could really significantly impact the wine with um, a, a decision that you're invited to vote on, couldn't you? Yes, exactly, exactly. That's what we, I
1: guess it's one of our main tenancies that we want to keep every vote interesting and impactful. There are a couple of votes that we've had in the past, which we just do for interest rather than... That can actually change the wine significantly. But generally, yeah, we want them to be different and we want people to, you know, have a bit of a fight over things. Like, we like people in their community talking to each other. And the members, and it also, it took us ages to work out exactly what we'd call them. And we settled on members, but it's, it's not quite perfect. But yeah, there are members currently. Um, and yeah, so we you're right, yeah, we give them decisions that, that really do impact the, the, the style of the wine. And I think that's the key. It's always the style of the wine, because sometimes there are decisions that we take that we don't put to vote, which are purely based on quality. So as a very inexperienced winemaker, I'd be very reluctant to use no sulfites at all and go down the natural route. Not to say I wouldn't do, or I'm not a fan of it, and potentially if we were to work with a part of the winery who are skilled in that type of winemaking, then we might do it. But Sulfites, we added a little bit to our first wine, uh, and it wasn't a vote just because I wanted it to be clean, safe, and drinkable. So that was one of an example of a decision that we didn't give to the members.
0: Okay, and for those listening who are aware of um, sulfites, um, but don't necessarily know why they are in almost all wines. uh, Well, certainly naturally occurring ones are, but but they're generally added to to most commercial wines. Just explain, because you're very good at explaining things in the emails you send out to the members. Just explain why sulfites are important, what they do and their effect yes i mean so so far let's do two main things right
1: one side they are um, antimicrobial so if there's any bad bacteria i guess living in the grapes that you don't necessarily want to produce any byproducts that will impact the flavor you, you'll want to get get rid of those certainly um and then additionally it's also an antioxidant so generally a lot of winemaking is about oxid oxidation management and managing the amount of oxygen that gets to your wine and there's lots of processes you do in winemaking that open up the the grapes and the juice to oxygen and sulfites just give you that little bit of protection because sometimes you think you might as well have a stable wine but if the pH changes for some reason or just even a simple temperature change as it's being shipped that can chemically change a lot of things and sulfites just sort of manage it very nicely <laughs> but then at, at the same time as well I, th- I read a paper fairly recently about the things that cause you to headaches in wine and sulfites is is one of the things but it only impacts a very small percentage of the population and then on the other hand you also get some histamines in wine which similarly affect a very small percentage of the population but sulfites inhibit the growth of those histamines so you know you can get a headache from sulfites
0: but you can also get a headache from no sulfites so it's, it's a tricky one And there's an example of a decision that you uh, felt was sufficiently important that you uh, didn't put it to a vote because otherwise you'd have uh, effectively ended up making uh, a wine that was potentially unstable. Um, Give us an example of a decision that is entirely democratic, but also fundamental to the wine. One of the most important decisions that you do give to your members. Yeah, so I think
1: if I look at Vintage 1... Uh, vintage two, sorry, we went to two. So vintage one was in Portugal, and we made an Alvarinho. Our partner winer, Serralheiro, are Alvarinho specialists, so we started with that as our base. We're going to make an Alvarino. Um and I'd say probably the, the decision that had the biggest impact on the wine was probably the vessel that we would ferment and age the wine in. Um, so we gave our, our members four options. We gave them the, the the stainless steel tank for sort of a classic crisp, crisp fresh fruity style of wine uh, we offered them a french oak barrel uh, a few years old that would would impart a little bit of toasty vanilla some some extra oak compounds into the wine and allow the wine to uh, develop with that slight ingress of oxygen and then also a chestnut barrel which doesn't quite have the same depth of flavor that a french oak barrel would do but it gives you that oxidation which rounds and softens the wine um, so three very different styles and actually also offered a a fairly innovative glass cube. But I think that spooked a few members. So we just went for, <laughs> they voted for 50%, sorry, 50% of them voted for stainless steel. 25 wanted French oak and 25 wanted the chestnut barrels. And in, in normal situations, actually, we go with the majority, but this was actually a very nice opportunity to split our wine. So we went into those exact proportions. It was a bit of a direct, towards was it, proportional representation vote so 50 percent. i went in a steel 25 into french oak 25 into into chestnut and and that was uh not our final blend but that was the basis of how we we made how we fermented and aged the wine
0: yeah i was gonna say we're into a conversation about voting reform here <laughs> uh, rather than uh yeah first past the post and all that but anyway that's a separate conversation you have kind of answered my next question which was uh, you're now on vintage two uh, you've just talked briefly about vintage one there so um, what have you set out to make number one was an alvarino uh in portugal and and then vintage two you went off to chile didn't you
1: yeah exactly and the, the place we went to there called ladder spencer boutique in coltragman chile they as opposed to soleri who are an alvarino specialist in, in ladder spencer they have a few grape options so we just said this time we're going to make a red wine from chile And then the first vote was was based on the varietals. And they do Syrah, Grenache, Mouvedre, uh, a bit of Marcelin, Sonso, a a few different Rhone varietals. So for this wine, they had a choice of, yeah, which which grapes to pick at the beginning. And it actually followed a similar vote to the the vessel in that we ended up with a blend and we co-fermented 60% Syrah, 20% Grenache, a little bit of Sonso, and then
0: a touch of Viognier at the end. That was a democratic decision. That mix,
1: yeah, again, exactly. that was a, that was another proportional representation vote, which I love because it means everyone's a winner in some way.
0: It's interesting that your members wanted that uh, dash of viognier in there.
1: Yeah, that was that was actually an addition to the original um, the original blend, and it was a it was an opportune decision that we weren't necessarily expecting. I was just walking through the vineyard one day, and and Matt, the guy who owns it, we, we were just looking at some viognier in the corner, and it. He hadn't quite got enough yield to make his own wine out of it or include it in his blends. So I just said, can we have a bit of that? Like, it's an interesting technical vote as well, because amongst other things, like Viognier does give freshness to a red blend, but also weirdly stabilizes the color. So you get a deeper red from adding a white grape. So I definitely wanted that vote just to explain this weird chemistry about uh, copigmentation, how Viognier can make a, a red deeper in color. So we, we offered it and... Yeah, the, the members said, yes, please.
0: And that is an age-old technique in the Rhone, of course, isn't it? Particularly with um, one of the most famous wines in the world, chateauneuf du Pap. That often has a, a splash of Fionnier in, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and Cote Roti in a few places around there. And I think, yeah, that's that's the standard we're aspiring to. And I think, yeah, this one tastes pretty similar to one of those top-end Cote or chateauneuf du pap
0: Wow, okay. Well, uh, I was going to say your members uh it's a leap of faith and I know there are a lot of them. I think probably the the overwhelming majority who have stayed with you for project number 2, but they have not yet tasted wine number 1, have they? Exactly. And that that is the biggest
1: the biggest concern, not concern, but when we first started was yeah, how do we convince people to buy vintage 2 when they haven't tried vintage 1? And actually, our our first wine, which is probably a couple of months away now, it's just getting through approval of labelling and stuff at the minute is proving a little bit trickier than we expected. So it could well be the case that I'll be asking for people to sign up to Vintage 3 before Vintage 1 has even arrived. So that will be a a, a true test of whether people are bought into the the full concept. And when they buy
0: in, what are they paying?
1: So for the first vintage, we did um, six bottles for £150. So that was... Yeah, 25 pounds a bottle is is one way that I think people look at it, but I'm also really trying to change people's minds on that because I don't, I mean people have different views on it, but I think for me I I see it as half experience and then half wine. Um so it's not really 25 pounds a bottle, it's probably more like 12.50 uh per bottle, which is pretty good value for wine these days. Uh but then you get the experience and the education and the learning and the and the fun and and the chance to be part of our community. That makes up the rest, the rest of the the cost, um, and then for Chile we it's a little bit more expensive, um, so we went to one hundred and eighty for six um, and then for vintage three i 'm yet to price it, but we fingers crossed could be going to California, so the cost of the wine will be a little bit higher but uh, i 'm looking at ways of not passing that on to the customer
0: <laughs> oh really that 's very uh, decent of you uh, can you tell us? Anything more about vintage three in California yet, or is it still under wraps?
1: It's yeah, it's a little bit under wraps. It's um, we still have a few things to sort out with the the contracts and stuff, just a dossing a, a of the eyes, crossing of the teeth thing. But it's it's in California. It's a region I'm excited about because I've tried very little wine from there. But a place called Livermore, sort of east of east of San Francisco, uh, about an hour and a half away from the yeah from San Francisco. And I'm also seeing that potentially as a a nice little trip for our members to go out, to go out there and visit other regions for the wine regions in the area. So I think one of the one of the most successful things that actually happened from Vintage One was the, um, the school trip that we organized out to Portugal uh, in February of this year, where we took 20 or so of our members to actually go and taste the wine in those three vessels. So as, you, as I mentioned, we had wine in the stainless steel, the chestnut and the, and the French oak. And they went out, tried each one individually, and we set up a little competition where we got them into teams. And then they all created their own blend, which was then Tasted Blind. And the winning blend became our blend for the first edition of Not Yet Named Blanko.
0: The field trip is a great idea, actually, in terms of um, the, the educational aspect of it, for want of a better word. Uh, presumably, that was rather challenging, trying to do anything like that for Chile.
1: Yes, I mean, it's, we've still not completely ruled it out. Um, I think the, the blending is slightly different in that we we just have the same wine, so the, there's not necessarily a blending opportunity. We co-fermented everything together, and then they went into, actually into the the same barrels, they were both 2019 vintages. So they, the two barrels that we have shouldn't be too different. So there's not necessarily the same blending opportunity that we had in the first time. And also it's it's a lot further away. Um, even once you get to Santiago, it's another four hours drive south. Um, so I don't know how viable that will be as a trip. But I will I will put it to a vote. You know, I'll ask people if they want
0: to go to Chile and if they do, then maybe we'll go. Well, yeah, it is very expensive to get there at the moment as well. But uh, you have very engaged uh, members and that's partly because you're so good at explaining things. Um you say you often uh you know write these emails when you're quite tired. Um you know you've you've had um, a, a full day already but it doesn't feel like that when you read them. You're really kind of good at explaining things. Is that do you think just because it's all quite fresh still for you?
1: Yeah, it could be and you you're right like I at the minute I'm in, in quite a good position where I really am marrying the the theoretical and the practical and I do read what I should be doing just before I do it. So I think you're right, like it's fresh and it's not, it's not necessarily bound by having made a wine for a long time that there's things that you implicitly understand that you don't necessarily share because you just think, I don't know, you, you think that, not that everybody knows it, but it's just because it's second nature to you as an experienced winemaker, you might not think that it needs to be explained. Whereas for me, I guess I'm still learning it from from the bottom. So I, I, perhaps
0: I explain everything you do uh and and as i say uh, really well you know um a lot of wine education frankly and i did it uh you know as a second career uh, i found it a bit of a struggle i i said uh, when i was talking to you and the other uh, shortlisted uh finalists from the uh emerging talent uh competition this year at the IWSC, there are three people sitting on a page, uh, on a stage rather, all of whom are, uh, you know, really very good at explaining things. And actually, when I was learning about winemaking and doing my diploma, I I found it quite difficult. And I found sometimes that um, some of the joy was sort of sucked out of wine for me. Um, but you uh, seem to have a, a very fresh approach um, to be, being able to explain this. Do you think wine education, frankly, uh, could be better in this country?
1: Yes, yeah, possibly in certain ways. Um, but I, I, at the same time, I do think that I guess the drier education that might be exam based at the end almost needs to be structured and clear, and I guess less entertaining because it it needs to be consistent because people are being examined on the at the end of it, and their sort of their potentially their careers are defined by grades they get so it needs to be very structured and organized and consistent whereas we're we're not bound by that there's no exam it's just learning things that are interesting so I probably don't necessarily cover the full breadth of things but I go into the depth on the stuff that's just interesting you know so I'm not bound by having to explain everything I just tend to explain the the interesting things so maybe that helps but then I I guess I also think my approach to the education side of it is more just to make it entertaining as well like we do go quite deep in some of the technical information uh, again partially because I, I need to know it for myself but then to retain the focus of the people reading it I try and just intersperse some daft pictures some captions with some jokes and just things that make the whole thing entertaining and fun so that you know that that learning just sort of is next to it, you know, and you're not you're not tired. You're not sitting down thinking, right? I have to learn something. You're sitting down thinking, oh, this is interesting, and then you know the education sort of sort of falls into the, the same bracket. And the way that we structure our emails um, is much like that. We have we have almost three or four different sections. The first section being for people who are just very busy who get a lot of emails who don't have the time to read these things. It's just a very simple this is the vote that might impact the wine, this is how it will affect the taste, and then you can vote. And then the next section will be a few pictures about what we're doing, some explanations, and also as people get the chance to vote, they also have an option to have – there's a free text box with the vote so people can submit sometimes their justifications as to why they've chosen an option, sometimes complaining that an option wasn't available, Uh, sometimes just telling me a joke – other times sending me some abuse for no reason. But I publish all of this stuff in the following emails just to create that community so people can sort of interact with each other as well and and, and talk about what's happening. And then we go into longer, detailed, technical information about winemaking, which is, is there if you want it. But if you don't feel like reading it, then that's fine. You don't have to. Yeah, it's not a requirement that you read everything, but if you want to and you've got the time, then by all means, I hope you enjoy it.
0: There are still significant kind of hurdles, barriers to entry, if you like, for people who want to enjoy wine. Um, you still sell bottles of wine. So uh, what What could kind of the industry more generally uh, learn from what you're doing, do you think, in terms of, of how people can be infused by wine rather than intimidated by it? Yeah, so again, yeah, this came up on the, the panel, didn't it,
1: where we were talking about that, you know, it's difficult for people to get into wine and sometimes they're put off by people who have been in the wine industry for a long time, who talk in a certain way that's difficult to understand. And I think often there's lots of people as well who are trying to demystify wine, make it simple and help people understand it more easily, which is great. And there's lots of people doing that in lots of ways. But I think where I I slightly differ with that view is that I think I think it's better to get, more people together. So the people who are perhaps considered intimidating or snobbish, I quite like to have them as my members and get them talking to people who aren't. And that conversation between people who are further along in their wine journey and people just starting out, I think is really interesting and and getting them to challenge each other and talk about Um, why they like certain things again it came up on the panel that we were talking about Chablis as a wine and some people will only drink Chablis and people coming in say well why do you only drink Chablis there's so many different styles and varieties and things Uh, but actually Chablis is like a a quite diverse region in itself and it's got a long history and it's it's unique and and varied and it's not it's not a bad thing to only want to drink Chablis but I almost want that Chablis drinker to explain to somebody who's just joined the wine industry why they like that and have a conversation and maybe they'll change each other's minds or or maybe not but i think yeah that wine like any hobby gets more complicated as you get into it and more technical um which is a good thing you know, I, I, I see it the same as with a with a piece of art you can go to an art gallery and, and look at something and just enjoy it for the beauty that you see but if you learn a bit of context about the artist and the, the period of time in which it was painted or drawn or whatever you learn a lot more and it becomes more interesting but it's not to say that you can't enjoy it at the beginning as you, you can at the end. but I think your enjoyment does increase the more you know and the more you learn.
0: Yeah, really good point. And uh, interesting you talk about Chablis because there are people in the trade who kind of laugh at those people who say, oh, I can't stand Chardonnay, uh, but I love a Chablis. And and I've always thought, well, don't laugh at them because actually they're actually making, although they're, they're not necessarily knowing it, they're making an observation about a style of wine when they're talking about Chablis, aren't they?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and Chablis is a unique Chardonnay, so it's it's not surprising because it, the people see that, you know, Chablis is very different to all the Chardonnays. So, yeah, it's 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 tricky. But but at the same time, if somebody doesn't know that Chablis Chardonnay when they learn, then it, it could open up a whole new world of different drinks for
0: them. So, yep, absolutely. Let's talk about winning the IWSC award, emerging talent in wine. It was hotly contested Uh, I know because I was on the judging panel I was uh, honored to be doing that how did it feel to win that
1: yeah like a a bit bit of a surprise it was it was just one of our members who submitted I guess the application on on my behalf so that came as a bit of a surprise that I was shortlisted and then I sent off a quick video explaining what we were doing and then a couple of weeks later again I I wasn't really following it too much so then I was put onto the shortlist with with other great candidates so you know we were talking to a couple the other day Ellen at sourcing table and Louisa, who's doing the, the canned wine with Brixton Wine Club and the wine tap line. These really great, I guess, competitors who are doing phenomenal things. Uh, so, yeah, it was a privilege to win and just a bit of a surprise. We weren't, I guess, we weren't privy to the process of how it happened. We just got the announcement via Instagram that you've won, which was, yeah, phenomenal.
0: So you've won uh, an accolade. Uh, you also won uh, a bit of dosh as well. Do uh, You have to do something very specific with it, which is travel. Uh, what are you going to do with the prize?
1: Yeah, so I've, I've, I've asked the London Wine Fair as well about the travel aspects of that because, and I, I sort of alluded to it earlier in a very uh, covert way, but what I'm hoping to do, because the Vintage 3, and if it ends up being in California, which is likely, the cost of the wine is higher. So what I've asked London Wine Fair is rather than use the money for actual travel, uh, whether we can, we can support the price uh, and offer a sort of a London Wine Fair discount using the money that was originally intended for travel to try and lower the price for people. So that, that's my current intention, is to use that money to to get more people involved in the project to make it a little bit cheaper.
0: Well, that sounds like a very admirable way of of using it, not that it's uh, uh, my decision. And what what's your ambition for Not Yet Named Wine Co. Uh, longer term? Is, is this sort of scalable, do you think, what you're doing? Yeah, I, I think it's really scalable.
1: I'm actually... I'll go back to our, my original intention with Not Yet Named Wine Code. It, it wasn't to be scalable or to grow or to be a big business. It, it was just generally to try and get, during my three years at Plumpton, to try and get six different harvests under my belt with having made my own wine and having had that funded by selling the wine. So that was that was my original intention. It was just going to be, can I get this thing to last for six vintages but with the success of the first and the second i think i'm I'm more tempted now to grow it and i will definitely continue doing it as long as there's demand and we also have the ability to to branch out into loads of different things you know we could do not yet named beer not yet named cider there's there's no reason why this process can't be applied to other products Um, we'll continue to partner with different wineries all around the world hopefully in england one day Um, i'd love to do something certainly in london and then get our members actually hands-on involved with the production as well as not just remote voting. I think that would be a really cool, cool thing to do. And then someone mentioned it the other day to me. They said, yeah, when are you, you going to buy your own vineyard? When are you going to have a not-yet-named vineyard? And, and that's a much more complicated proposition, but it, it could well be a dream that we move, we move into the viticulture side of things rather than just the winemaking. But that's massively complex and a long way down the
0: road, but it, it's good to dream, you know. You're kind of living the dream, in a sense, um, with your winemaking journey. What's uh, your kind of long-term goal for yourself? Because, you know, you're learning winemaking as you go. But uh, when you're a, uh, an accomplished winemaker, are you still going to be interested in, you know, what other people think and, and having the process democratised, do you think? Yeah. Um- yeah, I think so. I think, well, again, whilst there's demand, I'd, I'd love to keep doing
1: it. I, f- I find it really entertaining. I love the comments that come back every time we, we send a vote out. Like They're, they're very they're very funny people, our members. I do love the jokes they, they, they tell me. So it does get you closer to the to the people who are consuming your wine at the end, which I don't think I'd ever want to lose that. And there is an element of this process that means it's not yours. And to be fair, it's not. It's, it's the members' wine. But the way we set this up as well was, Every time we sell or make a bottle of wine, we actually make our own, our own, our own alongside. So we've done our Alvarino that will be the members' wine and only available to the members who've who've bought that. But we made more wine than we needed. And with that extra wine, we'll be labelling that under our own name and should be available in the summer. So I think we will continue to run Not Yet Name Wine Co. whilst also doing our own little wines in 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 each uh, location along the way. And I think that would be...
0: It's a a really interesting uh, model that you've developed. Um, Fascinating, actually. Um, I normally uh, ask winemakers, you know, if they have a a winemaking philosophy. Uh, you're a winemaker. I don't know if you've yet got a philosophy, but um, there's the question. What, what? How would you answer that um, at, at this stage in your career?
1: Yeah, you're, you're right. I absolutely don't have a philosophy. And I mean, I grew, my background in wine was Majestic, where they have the full range of styles. And I, I love the variety of wine. Um, so I almost actively don't want to have a philosophy, philosophy for quite a long while. Um, and what we do when we go to each part of the winery around the world, we almost adopt their philosophy. So we do, we will make a wine in their style, broadly speaking. And that's just a way for me to learn about how different people make different wines. So for as long as possible, I really want to avoid having my own philosophy. But I'm sure at some point I'll get some ideas of things I like and things I don't. I've all, I'm have already a little bit taken with whole bunch fermenting, whole bunch reds. So that might be, become a thing. But, but for now, I want to... Um, yeah, just be, just be led by our partner wineries and
0: our members. What is it about Whole Bunch that uh, excites you so much, by the way? It's the, uh, the the boring side of it. It's the the impact
1: on the kinetics of fermentation. It allows you to keep the cap a lot cooler without punching down. Uh, but I think stylistically, uh, in terms of the end product, it gives you a different fruit profile for me. You get a little bit of fermentation in the berries, which creates a much lighter fruit, more of a, a, a blueberry type st- type of fruit so if you add a little bit of whole bunch into like normal destemmed fruit you get some darker fruits and some lighter fruits and i quite like
0: that complexity that, that, that sort of change in profile across the across the fruit yeah i do too talking of which uh, the other question that uh, normally gets um shot the way of our uh, winemaking guests is um a desert island wine if you're stuck uh, well, you've listened to the podcast, so you might be expecting this question. But uh, if you're stuck on a desert island and you can have uh, only one wine. What's it going to be?
1: Oh, is, that, is that one style of wine or one particular no, no, it's producer? Really, it,
0: it's really a um, you know, fancy pants way of saying, you know, what's your favourite wine? What's the best wine you've ever had? <laughs> Uh, what what would that one wine be? And I know you like your variety, but you can't just uh, you can't just say all the <laughs> <variety>. <laughs> it's um okay, I'm I, I, you actually awesome. one. <laughs> okay, the one the one wine
1: producer that blew me away was David De in Burgundy. Like releve, like he does he does Pinot Noir and he does a, a fair bit of whole bunch. Um and that's where I first discovered that you can get that sort of different fruit character from a winemaking technique. Yeah, trying that with with them on site last uh, last April, with actually with some Plumpton colleagues as well. So that experience, and I, I genuinely believe as well that the way you enjoy a wine is is so dependent on the experience. So trying that with some some Plumpton friends, uh, learning something new, and it just tasting phenomenal is is probably my one of my best experiences in wine and one of my
0: favourite. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right about uh, experience being such a key part of it. I can drink the same bottle of wine, you know, on my own as with a bunch of friends. And it it genuinely doesn't taste as good if uh, if those friends are not there. So I I totally uh, buy into that. But uh, congratulations again on um, being uh, emerging talent in wine winner uh, and the uh, competition at the IWSC. As I say, it was very hotly contested and uh it's uh really exciting what you're doing with not yet named wine co as well so uh keep us posted on that and um good luck uh with your plans for vintage three yeah thank you very much so i guess if anybody does want to sign up you can go
1: to our website which is www.notyetnamedwineco.com and
0: there should be some information about vintage three being released Pretty shortly. Very slick. You get your uh, in <laughs> as well. Uh, well done, Alex. Uh, thanks very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Cheers. Thank you very much.
1: The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits.
0: OK, let's round off as ever with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And... This will be our last chance, I think, to visit the winners from 2022 because uh, next week the winners from the process in 2023 will be revealed. Uh, judging took place fortnight ago uh, for two weeks and it was a pretty intensive period, I know. I was there judging on the panels. Uh, so stay tuned for the results from the 2023 judging process. But... As I say, back to 22, and let's go to Chile first, as this was Alex's most recent vintage, as we heard. Uh He doesn't obviously have uh, any made wine yet, so he hasn't won any trophies uh, as uh, yet, uh, but um, I'm sure they'll come. In the meantime, Casas del Bosque uh, Pequenas Syrah 2020 was a silver medal winner last year from a judging panel overseen by Alastair Cooper MW, a guest here on the drinking hour talking, uh, Chile a while ago. Uh, the judges also included Emma Dawson, MW, an experienced retail buyer, uh, master sommelier, Matteo Montone, Al, Elvis Ziacos, and, uh, Brazilian, uh, South American expert, Paulo Brammer. And their tasting notes for this, uh, Casas del Bosque, Piquenias, Syrah 2020 says this. Reminiscent of tapenade and salami. This is a complex wine with concentrated flavors, forest fruits, vegetal notes of menthol and eucalyptus layered with smoky spices, lingers on the finish and sounds savory and delicious. Keeping it topical to what we've been uh, talking about, uh, let's go to Portugal next for an Alvarinho or at least an Alvarinho blend. Quinta Da Raza Alvarino at uh, 2021, a silver medal winner. Uh, the judge is here overseen by Irish master of wine, Mick O'Connell, previous guest here on the Drinking Hour in the uh, first series, I think. Uh, they said this, expressive green ripe fruit, skin aromas and flavours with creamy palate of green apple flesh, invigorating freshness with an attractive peach laden finish good length and well-structured. And I had the pleasure of uh, a day judging Portugal this year, so uh, do look out for uh, the results from that in a week or so's time. Let's stay in Portugal for another white, a silver medal winner with a very respectable 92 points, Cabeta de Toiro, Reserva. Terroir Fernau Pires 2021. Uh, the judges uh, for this, overseen by uh, Darcy Viana Jr., MW, uh, a Brazilian master of wine and a renowned expert uh, on Portugal, amongst other countries. Uh, the tasting note from the judging team says this ripe, creamy nose with stone fruit aromas on the palate. Orchard fruits, mango, papaya and a hint of banana join the well-balanced, concentrated flavour mix for a long finish. To New Zealand next, uh, because uh, I was very impressed at the London Wine Fair this week by the uh, New Zealand pop-up, which had some great wines. Uh, These are uh, winners, as I mentioned, from 2022 and a strong silver for... The Acorn Sauvignon Blanc 2021, produced by the Marlborough Grape Growers Cooperative. Um, I was on the judging panel actually last year uh, for this. Very high caliber of wines, as there was this year uh, from uh, Marlborough and right across New Zealand. And this is the tasting note uh, for that uh, wine uh, winner last year of a silver medal. Delicate aromas of fresh lemon zest with bright intensity on the palate. Notes of gooseberry florals and white pepper are beautifully balanced and refined. And finally, to uh, a place that uh, I went uh, very uh, recently, I'm delighted to say, uh, and there's uh, a visit here coming up uh, in a special edition of The Drinking Hour fairly soon. Catena Zapata, Adriana Vineyard, designated Malbec 2019, a strong silver. This comes... Uh, as the name suggests, from uh, the Adriana Vineyard, an altitude plot in Tupangatu province, uh, right in the foothills of the Andes. Uh, Incredible place. Uh, The judges said this, a fruit-driven style with ripe black fruit, plum flavours and a spicy coconut-infused touch of oak. Medium weight and well-balanced with a long finish. There we go. Time for my own uh, short finish now. Uh, That's it for uh, this week's edition of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Alex Brogan of Not Yet Named Wine Co. Uh, Do check out uh, that uh, site. He gave you the uh, website address just now. Uh, It's a great idea. And uh, he's um, got a real community that he's built there. So my thanks to Alex. My thanks to you uh, for listening this week. And do join us next time here on The Drinking Hour. Bye for now.
1: The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.